Thank you for that uh, lovely prayer and, and song. God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. Just a, a little, um, well, greeting before I, I begin. First of all, for those that don't know me, I'm Richard, so um, ordained, but a member of the church. So a punter, part of the congregation, but I, I work um, most of the time down in London. Um, on other church affairs. Um, last week, we heard from Mags talking about the church, St. Christopher's, the congregation, 30, even 40 years ago. Who was around when Hartmut was the vicar? I saw him this last week. His daughter was receiving an award for evangelism from the Archbishop of Canterbury. He sends his love, as does Amy. So Amy, some of you may remember her, I don't know how old she would have been, I think a teenager, yeah? So I spoke to her and her husband, she's been involved in work to proclaim the good news and was receiving an award, so they send their love. Okay, those of, oh, can we go back to the first slide, please? Those that don't know, those two funny-looking guys, Morecambe and Wise, um, if you were in Britain in the 1970s, they were a comedy duo. And one of their catchphrases was, so what do you think of it so far, Ernie? Rubbish. So we're going to have a little bit of a recap on the story, but I deliberately put in a bit of a sort of funny, more common wise feel to it, because I'll, I'll explain myself in a moment. I think we need to look at the book of Esther as history, and there are, you know there are different types of books in the Bible, so we've had a psalm sung to us, a poem, poetry of worship. We have letters, we have books of wisdom, sharing wisdom for life. Now, Esther, I think, is a particular type of history book. It's history that's dramatized. And when you read it, there are these oddball characters and situations that are really hammed up, and we need to see it as such. There's a drama that's kind of deliberately being told and retold by and for the people of Israel to show up something of light and darkness, and almost, dare I say it, to laugh in the face of tragedy. And we'll go on to some of the history that we connect with when, as we found in this text, there's something of evil trying to annihilate the Jews. But we'll, we'll go on to that in a moment. So somebody yesterday was talking about the series of Esther and admitting it's a really strange book, isn't it? It, it reads like, young adult fiction. There are evil schemers, beautiful maidens, and dubious things going on, kind of politically inappropriate. And dare I say, I mean, Tom raised the question, is Mordecai a good guy? We'll go on to find out next week. You know, slightly using Esther's beauty in a bit of a dodgy way. So there's kind of 
ooh, what's happening here? And did you notice the final sentence that we get in that chapter? The king and Haman sat down and drank. That recurs throughout the book. You get this sense of the king and his associates that are against the people of God, the Jews. They sit down and have a party. In the midst of horror, they're cavorting. Now, I'm not going to mention recent politics and developments in our nation. I'll just leave it that. But the sense of, of scandal and cartoon characters, that's okay. It's history dramatized because it's told time and time again by Jews. Does anybody know the festival in Judaism that remembers the story of Esther? Anybody know what it's called? Purim, that's right. And we had a word in the text that is the root of the festival that's celebrated today. So when the king and his evil aides and this, this terrible sidekick, Haman, says, right, we'll cast lots, we'll have a day where we kill them all. We'll wipe them out. Men, women, children, all in one day. And we'll draw lots on which day it is. And it's the poor, the, the lot where we get this word Purim, the day of drawing of lots. Now, if you know any Jewish people, today Purim is a day of fancy dress and sweets and games. How strange that the day of the annihilation of the Jews is a day for fancy dress and games and sweets. And it's the whole tradition that's in this story dramatizing the history to poke fun almost at evil and hatred and suffering. So my son at university, he's got friends in the Jewish society. His favorite party last year was the Jewish society Purim party. Yeah. And he sent me photographs of Jewish friends dressed up as a, is it Stabilo? the luminous markers, yeah? You, know, you get luminous markers and to underline things. So somebody had spent hours and hours and lots of money dressed up as a luminous marker to celebrate Purim, go figure. And it's a little bit like, uh, do you know how in Jewish circles jokes about dark things are kind of in, and if we joke about the same things, it's kind of inappropriate. So Mel Brooks, famous Jewish comedian, he wrote, I mean, it's, it's even horrible to kind of conceive, a musical about the Holocaust called The Producers, a funny musical. The Book of Esther is in this vein. Okay, so, oh, we've lost Morecambe and Wise. If we can just keep it on the, the PowerPoint, that'd be fine. Thank you. So hence, Morecambe and Wise. What do you think of it so far? So very, very quickly, just so you've got it, Esther, the beautiful young maiden that's chosen to be queen. She's Jewish, God's chosen people, but she's not dared to admit she's Jewish. So 
She's taken the advice of her adoptive father, kept it quiet, and the evil Haman comes into this powerful position and says, right, everyone bow down before me. And Mordecai, as a good Jew, any Jew worships the one God. You don't bow before anything or anyone else. And he refuses. So Haman plots and says, okay, I'm not going to be shamed, embarrassed. I'm not going to try and persuade him as an individual. If he's not going to change his mind, we'll kill them all. We'll wipe them all out. Now, we've left it on a cliffhanger. We've left the text with this, well, the plot for annihilation of the Jews, and then they go and have a drink. We've left it there, but I hope I'm not letting the cat out of the bag by telling you it has a happy ending. But let's stay with this for the moment. Let's go on to the, the next slide, please. Annihilation of the Jews. I can imagine the first thing that comes into your mind is the history of Nazism in the last century. Now, what I want to talk about as we just reflect on this is not Nazism, because it's very easy, particularly if you're British, to think, well, it's all about them over there. That was part of German history. What I've got a photograph here is Clifford's Tower in York. Anybody seen that or visited? Yeah? So Clifford's Tower is a site of a massacre of Jews in the 12th century. Several hundred Jews were killed, locked up, and burned in that tower. Many more committed suicide because they refused to be forcibly baptized. I don't know if any of you watched the coronation and some coverage beforehand. Did any of you see an interview with the chief rabbi of the Jews? Where, I mean, this, is, this last coronation was the first time ever that a chief rabbi of the Jews had been in a coronation. And he talked about how the history, even of the coronation, so when King Richard was crowned, and not long before this massacre, I think the year before, various Jewish tradespeople were going to Westminster Abbey to pay homage, and they got beaten up and killed on the way because the church said, God has turned his back on the Jews, has rejected them, therefore we're going to expel them. And not long after this, they were even expelled from the whole country. Now the reason for me, for me mentioning this is, in one sense, for us to own some of this story for ourselves. And it's hard stuff. It's history, but it's living history. There is a pattern throughout history of, first of all, God's chosen people, the Jews, being persecuted. And the church has been a part of that. And, and this is difficult stuff because, well, I think it's a good place 
to remind ourselves of our need for humility. Why we confess our sin in church. We're part of a community that sometimes does stuff that is absolutely contrary to the will of God. There's a great history of the church. The Holy Spirit moves in the church today and around the world. But there's also a dark side that, frankly, we cannot afford to be honest and open about. Whether it's our participation in slavery and earning funds from that, abuse of children and women in the church. There was a survey even last week suggesting that within the church, sometimes the interpretation of certain of the letters of the New Testament has led to greater violence, domestic violence and oppression of women in the home. That's been a survey even in this last week. I think it's really good that we're just honest and open about that. We say sorry and we look before God to be and do differently. So this is a story that's not, not out there. It's not even distant history. It's human beings. So whilst there's a hamming up, a dramatizing of this, it's real life. And we'll go on to talk about how it's not just real life for persecution of the Jews, but also persecution of Christians. So let's go on to the next slide. This is possibly the biggest question that people ask about Esther. Maybe mentioned already, I'm not sure. But do you know that Esther is the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God? That's a fact for you. That's a good pub quiz one, Mike. The only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. It's a really strange thing. So what do you do with it? I think it's a really good thing that God isn't mentioned in this book. Because it tells us that sometimes it's hard to see where God is. Sometimes the work of God is hidden. And it might be we look back and think, I can see how God held me. I can see how God was faithful. It might be in the midst of darkness we receive comfort inexplicably, even though all the circumstances would suggest otherwise. But there is something about saying, where is God in this? Where is God in this picking of these virgin women against their will, with no power of their own? Where is God in the seeming use of this beautiful Jewish maiden's beauty and body to save the Jews? Where is God in this? Where is God in the reality that evil individuals can dictate that a whole community are annihilated? And we ask that today, don't we? Where is God in Russia and Ukraine at the moment? 
whilst we follow the news and we can say, well, this Wagner group might show that there's a rebellion and Putin could be got rid of, the Wagner group, wow, they're crooks and they've done atrocious things throughout Syria and in Ukraine and where is God? And sometimes it's only later. Sometimes it's in the midst of suffering that God delivers and comforts. But this is a question for the book, and it's a question for us. Let's go on to our, our next slide. So, God's chosen people, the Jews, and as it says in Romans, we, the church, are grafted on, like plants where different buds can be taken on from other plants. We have been brought in to be a chosen, holy, faithful people before God. And the New Testament reading that we heard where Jesus says, look, you're going to be persecuted. Just like I was. It comes with the territory being God's people. Now, we're a church community from different parts of the world, and I don't know the stories of our friends from Nigeria, but I do know that in Nigeria, this is a reality right now. In areas where there's persecution of the church. A few weeks ago, an area in the east of India called Manipur, um, several churches were burnt down. Um, I was talking to a man who's going to be ordained to be a priest in the church, whose family are over there. He sent me video footage of churches on fire and, and rioters pillaging Christian shops. This last week, I had the privilege of meeting the Roman Catholic Cardinal of Baghdad. And if you know anything of the history of Iraq in recent years, well, ISIS for years held sway, and he was saying to the Church of England, to leaders in the Church of England, please come and visit, help us, support us, speak out so that we are treated as equal. Christians in Iraq, they'll go for a job, and if a local person who uh, um, is a Muslim, as opposed to a local person who's a Christian, also goes for the job, it will not be given to the Christian. Speak out for us, please. This is the territory of being a follower of Christ. And Christ was treated like this. And it begs the question, because we cannot equate what happens in some areas of the world with what happens here. But I think there are daily costs, aren't there, when you do the right thing by not joining in with bullying or certain moral behaviors in the workplace or in the neighborhood, it can be costly, costly in the workplace for progression, for friendships. And Christ Jesus says to us, this is the path of God's people. I've walked this. But wonderfully, let's go on to our final, final slide. Wonderfully, 
we are more than conquerors. God sends his Holy Spirit as advocate. So an advocate, like a lawyer, speaking out on our behalf to God and to the world and to the powers of darkness, saying, these are my people, I will deliver. And if not in this life, ultimately in the life to come, in the new creation, God is faithful. He is no one's debtor. And in the cross and resurrection, all we face, all the church faces in areas of persecution, he will deliver. We have hope. We have victory. So, what do you think of it so far? It's not rubbish. What do you think of it so far? Our eyes are set on our hope. We did a a mini-series on Romans, didn't we, some months ago. God with us, our hope. I don't actually know what it means to be more than a conqueror. But it's goodness and life and hope and comfort here and now. So, as we reflect on this strange book, it is a strange book. Let's recall that long history of God's people, his faithfulness, but also be able to laugh at the powers of evil because in Jesus we have the victory. Amen. Let's pray.